Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Letter of St. Paul to Titus. I want to welcome any visitors or guests we might have or folks that haven't been here for a few weeks. This is our third Sunday in Paul's letter to Titus. Um, last week, we started to look at what are normally called the qualifications, or I would say qualities, for leaders in the church, elders in this particular case. Uh, we should expect that because of what Paul said in the very first part of the letter, uh, calling on Titus to set everything in order, including establishing leadership in the islands on, on the island of Crete. And we got into that list of uh, qualifications, or again, I would say qualities or characteristics, because while Paul is specifically talking about what we would hope to find or need to find in leaders in our church, he's really talking about the characteristics of every Christian, all of us should be seeking to be, desiring to be, what Paul talks about in the Galatian letter, Christ being formed in us and pursuing that in our lives, both, both individually and corporately, um, that Christ be formed in us. His character manifested in us and through us. And if there's something else that we're looking for in our faith, at least something else before that, I don't know what it could be. That really needs to be our highest priority for each and every one of us, that Christ's character be formed in us. That's what we should be pursuing, which brings us to our text this morning. Last week, Paul was talking about what we might call some of the positive qualities, some of the positive characteristics, uh, and this morning, we're going to look at something on the negative side, that Paul told Timothy, you want to make sure whoever you choose for a leader doesn't have this, right? A negative, right? That's, that's there as well. And um, it's, it's a specific concern, not wholly unique to Crete, but it's a very specific concern, and it's not what you might normally expect Paul to list first. You know, Paul's telling Titus, you've got to establish leadership in the church. Here's what you want. Here's what you don't want. And, you know, whatever you might expect to be on the Here's what you don't want list. This might not be it. And then also, uh, just by way of, uh, I guess, warning maybe is the right word, um, we're really going to focus on one issue this morning. And when we focus on it, there's a pretty good chance your reaction when I tell you what it is might be, really? That's what you're going to talk about? That's what we're going to spend this morning on? Yeah, really. And so if, that is your, if that's not your reaction, that's great. But if that's your reaction, just please bear with me right? Because it, it actually is far more relevant than you might think when we get to it. So having, having said that, to prepare things, I guess I have your attention, right? Okay, so Titus chapter 1, and we're going to start with the ninth verse, which was the last one we read last week. Paul writes on the positive side of the ledger, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's the last positive thing he said. Then verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. His testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And your word, Father, this morning is, is a strong one. Father, Paul uses your apostle, writing by the inspiration of your spirit. He uses some really strong words this morning. So, Father, we can be confident that what we're talking about is indeed something of great importance to us. So we simply ask you to open our minds and hearts to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we, that passage we ended with, verse 9, the ending of the, the positive qualifications he talked about, that reference to holding fast the word of truth, that really is a description of everything Paul says over on that positive side of the ledger. A firm grip on the word of God and the word of God having a firm grip on us because that is how his character is made manifest in us. That is how we grow in his character, by his word getting a hold of us. So having established that, he kind of goes 180 degrees to the other side of the ledger and he turns to some characteristics or a characteristic that most certainly must be avoided. And what I'd like to do is just kind of go through the passage quickly, just survey these, these, these verses quickly, and then focus in on that one really central issue. So just to take a quick look at the, at the entire section. He says in verse 10, there are many rebellious men, right? He's talking about people in the church. Oh, and by the way, ladies, remember I said last week, when he listed the positive qualifications and he used the word men, and that wasn't supposed to be there. That was just there as a tool of translation. It's really anybody. The word men, well, the word's not here either. So he's talking to you just as much, right? For anybody. I said there are people. There are people who are rebellious, right? They're empty talkers. They're all talk. They're deceivers. What they do say is false. And especially of the circumcision. I've said it so many times before. Watch for the little words, right? He doesn't say especially the circumcision. And the circumcision, of course, is a reference to Jewish Christians. That's what he's referring to. But he doesn't say especially the, the circumcision. He, he's not talking about all Jewish Christians. There is a segment within that group that Paul's honing in on. There's a group within Jewish Christians. They are of the circumcision. They're literally out of the circumcision. There's a small segment within the Jewish Christians on the island of Crete that are causing these problems, and that's what he's talking about. He says in verse 11, shut them up. Just shut them down. Silence them. Some of Paul's strongest terminology is found in this portion of the letter. He says they're upsetting entire families. We'll come back to that. Right? They're teaching stuff they should never teach, and they're doing it all for their own benefit. Now, to reinforce this, in verse 12, he quotes a Cretan prof, uh, poet, Epimenides, had written about six centuries before. And he says of Cretans that they're what? Evil brutes, liars, gluttons. And then he says in the next verse, and that's true. Not exactly a nice thing to say about somebody in church, but Paul says that's the truth. He takes this matter, whatever it is, really, really seriously. And then in verse 14, he cites the particular problem. He says, not paying attention to Jewish myths, meaning they should appoint people who are not paying attention to Jewish myths, and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. That's the problem, right? And then verses 15 and 16, he goes on to say, to the pure, all things are pure. It's almost as if it doesn't connect. The connection's not, not real obvious. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. 
They profess to know God. By their deeds, they deny him. Paul's talking about people in the church. People that would be in position to potentially even be considered as leaders. But he describes them as being detestable, disobedient, and worthless. Pretty strong stuff. This problem must be really serious. Well, the problem is what he referred to back in verse 14, right? When he said, they pay attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now, I'm assuming you all know what the word Jewish means, right? That doesn't need to be expounded. We all know what Jewish means, right? And I think we pretty well understand what the phrase commandments of men mean. It's things that people added to Scripture, made it more difficult, more challenging, harder work, right? The one word that we really hang up here on is the word myth, Jewish myths. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, Jewish myths. Is that really that important? Yeah, it is, right? What I want to do this morning, if, you, if you'll bear with me, is take some time to talk about just that word and to trace it. And it, I've got a reason for doing this, please trust me, to take some time to trace the development of that word in the language. And then once we've done that, to trace the development of Jewish thinking over a period of several centuries going back to the 7th century BC. And there's a point at which this Greek word and Jewish thinking intersect. And it's not good, right? So the term myth we're talking about, probably the easiest Greek word you're ever going to want to learn, if you want to learn a Greek word, is mythos. Just mythos, that's myth, right? And going back to the 7th century, mythos, right, as Homer would use it, so 7th century or before, was just a story. It's just a story that teaches a lesson. It's any story that teaches a lesson. You move forward about a century, right, and you come to uh, Pindar, who's a poet, and he, he narrowed that definition a little bit. For Pindar, the story that taught the lesson, the story itself was, was made up. Fairy tale, right? But the lesson it taught was true, right? So how, if you're familiar with Aesop's fables, if you're not a highly recommended, they're very entertaining reading. They're great, right? And they're short, right? Short, short fairy tales, short fables that teach a moral lesson. And that's where the word was about the 6th century, 5th century. As time progressed, the word defined even more to... The, the fable, which could be true or not true, usually wasn't true, told a story, and the story had to be morally good. Whereas before it could be good or bad, now it's morally good. By the time we get to the 4th century, it had to not only be morally good, but it had to connect directly to the idea of religion or spirituality. So the myth progresses over time from this generic story that has a point to a, a made-up story that has a real point to being a good story that has a good point to being one that is specifically focused on the area of religion or spirituality. Okay, That's the arc of the word. Now let's take a few minutes to talk about the arc of Jewish thinking. You go back to the 7th century and you find a change occurring up until the 7th century Typical Jewish interpretation of Scripture was just like we might read Scripture, right? If a Jew read that King David fled from Saul, they would conclude that, or not King David, David fled from King Saul, excuse me. If they read that David fled from King Saul, that meant 
that a guy named David ran away from a king named Saul. That's not difficult, right? But beginning in the 7th century, a, a style of interpretation, right, a style of interpretation began to develop in Jewish thinking where words didn't necessarily mean what they meant. It could be equally said that David running from King Saul could mean the people of Israel fleeing from their persecutors in the world. Words started to mean other than what they meant. And that expanded over time to include the entire Old Testament. Virtually every event, every story, everything that was told could also mean something else. Well, that began to develop even further. Because if the words don't have to mean what they mean, then anything can mean anything. And it began to be thought that if the meaning of the text, and again, this is, the, and this, by the way, is not a universal. Please do not get me wrong. This was not at all universal in Jewish thinking. This was a group within Jewish teachers. Certain school of rabbis are teaching this way, right? That, okay, words can mean other than what they mean. And if the words have any meaning at all, at least the words on the printed page have any meaning at all, then the letters must have meaning. And so before long, they began to find spiritual meaning in the actual individual letters. Well, if the letters have meaning, I mean, what gives, what gives a letter meaning? The shape of the letter, right? Well, what gives the shape of the letter any identifiable characteristic? The white space around it. The white space must have meaning. That further develops, and now we're getting closer to the 5th and 4th century BC. If the white space between the letters has meaning, well, how about the white space between the lines? Does that have meaning too? And you end up with a school of thought where even the white space between the lines has to be interpreted. Now, all of this thinking is being written down, and by the time we come to about the writing of the New Testament, pretty close in time, we end up with a document with profound influence in certain groups of Jewish thinking called Talmud. Now, do not confuse Talmud with Torah. Torah is the law. Now, it refers specifically to the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law and the Pentateuch, those first five books. It can be used to refer to the whole of the Old Testament. But no more than that. Now, if you have a, a bound Bible, if you're not on your phone or tablet, if you have a I mean, real Bible, you can kind of look and get a pretty good idea how big the Old Testament is. In the case of my Bible, it's about 1,600 pages. You know, depends on the font size, how thick the paper, you know, I have an idea. About, about 1,500 pages, 600 pages in my Bible. The Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, is 5,200 pages. Because these ideas have expanded and grown. And literally anything becomes anything. Nothing is anchored to anything concrete. Now you connect that idea in Jewish thinking to what is already going on in the Greek language with the idea of the myth being that story, which can be true or not. The story itself doesn't have to have any bearing in reality. You connect, as long as it has a good lesson at the end, a good spiritual religious lesson at the end, you connect those ideas, what do you get? Now, in the late 4th century BC, you add a third strain to that, thanks to our good friend Alexander the Great, who bought Greek thinking to the entire Mediterranean world, and with that Greek philosophy, and you add a particular strain 
of Greek philosophy called Neoplatonism to that same idea, and you add a whole nother element to this fabrication of ideas. And you come up with, with a situation where virtually nothing that we read is concrete. And it's being produced in the church by people from a Jewish background simply because that is what they brought with them when they returned from Babylon. It's called the Babylonian Talmud. That's the most influ influential copy. And what has happened is that has infiltrated the church in Crete. And these churches are struggling with maintaining a, a confident understanding in anything Scripture says because they have so many highly educated people in the congregation telling them, well, that actually doesn't mean that. I know some of you have a, have a, have a, a good knowledge of what I'm talking about. You've come from that kind of group. When did this stop? It never did. It never has. And I can tell you in all sincerity that I have had conversations with people in the past and we're talking about things of the Lord and, you, and they quote a passage of Scripture and you go, what? That does not say what, it's, what you're saying it says. And what is their response? Oh, you don't understand. You see, in Talmud, which is part of this Jewish mythological thinking which brought up to Crete, there's actual multiple layers of understanding. There's the obvious layer, whatever the text says is what it says and that what it means, which any thinking person can understand. Then there's that second layer that says, well, you know, words mean different things and David running from Saul is Israel being chased by foreign nations. And then there's the whole thing of the, you know, the, the spaces in the text and that means something else. Oh, and we forgot to mention the numbers. Numbers are very important in scripture when you see the number three it implies the presence of God, because God is Trinitarian. Uh, seven, like seven days a week, sense of completion, that comes out of, out of the creation account. So there, numbers are important, but they're not all important. Well, in the Talmud, every letter equals a number, so now you're adding up numbers in words, numbers in sentences, numbers in line, and that creates a whole other layer of meaning. And when I've talked to folks... The text doesn't say that. They say, oh, that's because you don't understand. You're not at that level or at that level, depending on how you want to, you know, arrange the chart. This is alive and well today. Those of us that were around in the 90s, I know that's not everybody here, but those of us that were around in the 90s, remember when all the celebrities were getting hooked up on Kabbalism? That was all over the news. This celebrity, that celebrity... That's a, all, all Kabbalism is this stuff on steroids. That's all it is, right? It's even weirder. They added a lot more of the Greek stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just, it's bizarre, right? As I said, I've encountered more than one person that you try to have an intelligent discussion about Scripture, and what does it come to? Well, you just don't understand, John. You're not at that initiate level, and you simply cannot have an intelligent conversation. More importantly, you can't anchor your faith to anything. Because if the word doesn't mean what it means, and we can't be solid and secure in what it means, then how do we know anything? It's only if we have a solid understanding, holding fast the word of truth, as he said back in verse 9, that we can be competent of anything. Let me give you just one example of, of how this whole idea worked from the text. And um, I know it's a particular verse of scripture that some here are kind of sensitive to, because I know some of us, unfortunately, when we talk about the Word of God, 
when we talk about the influence of the word of God in our lives, have had an experience that wasn't good. Maybe in your young life, you literally had the word of God pounded into you. And the idea of, of a close, intimate relationship with God through his word is just not something that resonates with you. That, that's, that doesn't work for you, right? I understand that. And I want to speak to that. And I want to speak to that through this example that I'm going to share. And this is right from the Talmud. It's from a section of the Talmud called the Sanhedrin, right? It's a quotation from the book of Jeremiah. Some of you who have had a difficult background, maybe in your youth with the word, can guess where I'm going with this passage, right? Jeremiah 23. And it's written at a time when the people of Israel... And it's, it's kind of hard to line the timeline up really tight, but it very well could have been for the same kind of things we're just talking, the same kind of reasons we're talking about. Jeremiah 23, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah says this, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of these prophets who prophesy falsehood? Even the prophets of the deception of their own heart who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. So the people of Israel are kind of on the edge here. They're, they're going to go the way that God had directed for them, the, the word that God had given them, the law, the prophets, or they're going to go after what these false prophets are saying. And Jeremiah is speaking in that situation. It's very similar to what Titus is dealing with in Greek. The next line, Jeremiah writes this. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? What does that mean? What does that mean? Is not my word like fire, and like a hammer that shatters the rock. It's very simple. God's word is truth. And truth has an effect. It's not always visible. It's not always immediate. But the truth of the word of God always has an effect. Not according to Talmud. According to Talmud, according to the school of interpretation of these creative thinkers, the expression, I love, you got to give people credit for their Creativity, you do. When Jeremiah said that God's word was like a hammer that shatters a rock, again, this is right, this is right out of the Talmud, that is a proof text that every passage of Scripture has more than one meaning. Because after all, when a hammer shatters a rock, what does the rock turn into? A number of pieces. There's your proof, right? Of course, the problem with that is, in Jeremiah's statement, the word of God is the hammer, not the rock. Right? All you got to do is think about it a little bit, and the error becomes obvious. But that's what happens when you allow this kind of creative anything can mean anything. Now I want to speak to those for whom this is a painful statement. Because in your past, in your upbringing, your childhood, the word of God was like a hammer in your life. Here's the point. It wasn't the hammer's fault. The word of God is a tool. It speaks of itself as a tool. The word of God describes itself as a hammer, as a sword, as a light, as a lamp. All kinds of descriptive statements are made in the word of God about the word of God. It is a tool. 
And the way the tool is used is dependent on the hand and the intent of the one that would use it. A perfectly decent hammer can build a home or it can break a bone. It isn't the hammer's fault when it is abused. So if in your background you had had an experience where the word of God is frankly something you don't feel drawn to because of the way it was used, simply ask that God would help you come to that place that you understand it wasn't the word of God that did the damage. It was the word of one using it. His word always produces life. His word always produces light unless it is deliberately used to produce something else. His word is what we have. When we pastored um, in Huna, it was um, our privilege to see a, a church built. A beautiful facility was built. And a real high point for me, and, and I'll finish with this, a real high point for me was when we had this beautiful pulpit made. Tom and Jan will remember that beautiful wooden pulpit we had made for the church there. And um, I had a little brass plaque made for it. And it was something that I wanted just for myself. Because every time I stood in that pulpit, I wanted to see those words. Is not my word like fire. And like a hammer that shatters the rock. That was not there to encourage me. That was not there to instill confidence in me or anybody else that stood there. That was there as a reminder of two things. Whose word it is. And to be extremely careful with every word that came out of my mouth. It is his word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And if we rely on anything else, we are lost. What are we going to rely on if we don't rely on this? Our own intuition? Our gut feeling as to what is right? I know I'm not doing that because I know this guy. And I don't trust him. But I trust this because I can Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And um, Father, it is such, here we are, seven, well, no, like 3,000 years after this idea crept its way into the thinking of the people of God, that the word of God didn't actually mean what it meant, it meant something else. And that we just had to be like spiritually enlightened to figure it out, rather than the plain, simple truth of your word, Lord. And here we are, 3,000 years later, fighting the same battle. And there are still people who would tell us that, no, it doesn't mean simply what it means, Lord. Father, we're cautioned in your word that those who would pursue that kind of truth inevitably bring with it the commandments and teachings of men. They just add on stuff, Lord, that doesn't do anybody any good. Not good for any good work, he said. Father, so I pray that in our pursuit of you, in our desire to see the character of our Savior made manifest in us. Jesus' character developed in us, both individually and collectively, Father. We would let nothing, Father. We would allow the strong wording of Paul's comments to Titus 
We would let nothing keep us, Father, from leaning wholly and completely on the instruction of your word, Father. For that is all we have. And in that, Father, we have all we need. Help us, Father, to be found faithful in that pursuit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.